Good morning. Good to see you. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm 119. The weather this morning <clears throat> reminds me of a church at which I work years ago. And every Sunday morning, the pastoral staff was required to wear a suit and a white shirt. And we gathered in, in a room with no air conditioning. And I, I can remember on some Sundays perspiring right through the legs of my trousers. <laughs> it was hot. And it was in the Midwest. So there was humidity on top of it all. And, uh, and you would never take your suit jacket off. Never take your suit jacket off. But you know what? I feel free enough in this happy little congregation in Fullerton, California to unbutton my sleeves. Got a little toasty in here first hour. And, uh, yeah, there you go. Uh, no, I don't know about that. <laughs> anyway, Nancy and I are looking forward to adventuring with you in this new week. It's uh, uh, all something that's uh, new to us. And I looked at the 2010 video online of Kingdom Quest, the last time it was done. So I'm all amped up and ready to go for this time. Well, uh, we are continuing on now in this new summer series uh, right in between 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And that series is Habits of Grace, which Eric Tanis introduced last week. And this morning is uh, uh, a focus on our first habit, which is the Word. Years ago, uh, one summer, I worked for my uncle, and he has a material handling business. And I spent the whole summer swinging a hammer and turning a wrench and refurbishing forklifts and assembling warehouse rack and pushing and pulling and lifting and getting up early and coming home late and sweating. Man, I sweat that summer and I froze. Say, freeze, it's the summertime. Well, we had one job that was at Knudsen Ice Cream in downtown Los Angeles uh, in a warehouse that was 30 below zero. And so I, I froze, believe me. And one day I'm talking to my uncle and I'm asking him what he likes about his business, because there wasn't anything about it that I uh, particularly enjoyed. I did not like it at all. A warehouse rack is cold and heavy, and uh, a forklift transport pallets of uh, impersonal, boring objects. And uh, we did our work in either bustling downtown LA with all the snarling traffic down there, or in some remote, nondescript, industrial park. So um, after hearing me go on about this for a bit, he said, uh, my uncle said, well, I don't think of my work like that. He said, I think of my work as putting dinner on the table for 125 families. <laughs> Gulp. And in that moment, everything changed for me. Nothing had changed. The elements were all the same, but the way I saw those elements had. It, 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 it was a, a gestalt moment, if you will, an aha moment, if you will. You know, a, what, what I did was a job for me, but I, I realized for my uncle it was a joy. <clears throat> for me, it was 
all about sweat. But for my uncle, it was an act of service. And again, I have never looked at work in the same way again. Well, if you grew up in the evangelical church, uh, you may look at the Bible as that thing that you were presented as a child, you know, by a parent or a pastor or a Sunday school teacher, that thing that you then tucked up under your arm and carried to church every Sunday morning or midweek meeting or summer camp. And if you're in the, the, a part of the, the larger grace congregation, it may be the thing for which you left your home and came to Southern California so you could receive a formal Bible education at a place like Biola or Westmont or someplace like that. Or you may be uh, pursuing um, a graduate degree in some area of biblical studies or theology. Now, all of that's great, unless that's the extent of your relationship with the Bible, uh, unless your um, uh, interaction with the Word begins and ends right there. A relationship with the Bible that's nothing more than that thing that you carry to church, that thing on which you're tested, that thing from which the professor lectures. And while you wish it were more, because you know it should be more, it's not. Well, last week, uh, again, Eric Tonis began our series on the habits of grace, nine aspects, uh, elements, of building blocks of the Christian life. The goal of which, part and parcel, is, as Eric put it, and I quote him here, intimacy with and enjoyment of God, which glorifies him and bears fruit in us. So i got a question for you right here at the outset. Are those words that characterize your relationship with God? Intimacy. Enjoyment. Fruitfulness. If they're not, then you're in good company because there are others who have felt the same way. Uh, an eminent 20th century Bible scholar who was well into the second half of her career woke up one day and realized, and I quote, despite all my years of study, I knew nothing of God. Even yours truly with an undergraduate degree in Bible, a graduate degree in theology, five years of pastoral experience. Um, had to admit one day in my early 30s that uh, while I had read the Bible, you know, to be tested on it and to teach it, I had never really engaged with Scripture in any substantive, transformative way. So wouldn't it be beautiful if this morning... We had an aha moment, a gestalt moment with the scripture. When you stop viewing the Bible as that thing that you carry in one form or another to church or that thing that you study or that thing that you teach, and instead you start viewing it for what it is, and that is nourishment, the bread of life, living water. So to begin, I, I, I want to be clear as to what this sermon is not. 
The sermon is not about how to get a handle on the scripture in terms of doctrine, you know, its reliability, its inerrancy, its sufficiency, or in terms of study. Though that would be a good thing, because if truth be told, uh, most of what we know about the Bible, we've either heard about the Bible or read about the Bible, but we've never really read the Bible. The great Puritan commentator Matthew Henry puts it well when he said, study close, especially make the Bible your study. There's no knowledge which I am more desirous to increase in than that. Men get wisdom by books, but wisdom toward God is to be gotten out of God's book and that by digging. Most men do walk over the surface of it and pick here and there a flower, but few dig into it. So to be clear, study is a good thing, but that's not what this sermon is about. So if, if, if this sermon is about growing in the habit of reading God's word, uh, and, and, and it's not about how to get a better handle on it, then what's it for? Uh, this sermon is to help us understand how the Bible can get a better handle on us, get a hold of us, how the Bible can nourish us and refresh us and transform us and satisfy us and make us into persons that we could not have otherwise become. So we're going to do that by taking a look at Psalm 119. It's a chapter that lies smack, almost smack dab in the middle of Scripture. It's just two chapters off center. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, 176 verses, and it is all about God's written word. And we're going to see how that word gets a hold of one's life when he or she begins to approach it willfully, courageously, and prayerfully. Um, and then uh, we will take a look at some uh, practical ways uh, to go at those three things. I I'm going to be referencing a bunch of scriptures. Uh, some of them I'll mention along the way. Some of them I won't. Uh, don't worry about taking notes because a couple days into the new week, there'll be um, all of these scriptures, all of these points and scriptures in a, a message that goes out through Grace Wire. So you can sit back and relax and listen to this sermon. Well, according to Psalm 19, 119, to grow in the habit of being handled by God's word, one must approach it first willfully. Willfully. Now, that's a difficult thing to do. Think of all the years I worked with college students. The statement that I heard most often from them was this. I don't want to read the Bible because I have to read the Bible. I want to read the Bible because I want to read the Bible. And I, I appreciate <laughs> uh, all that went behind uh, a number of those people saying that, uh, sincerity, earnestness. But um, the fact of the matter is, the psalmist is clear that if one wants to be handled by shaped by the scripture, he or she has to exchange his or her will for God's will, and that by way of reading and obeying the scripture, no matter how 
you happen to feel about it on a given day. Well, what does Psalm 119 say about that? It says that we are to praise the Lord from whom that word comes. We are to meditate on that word. These are acts of the will. We are to fix our eyes upon it. We are to not forget it. We are to run in the way of it. We are to speak to others about it, even kings. We're to lift up our hands toward the word and worship and even sing about it as we have this morning. We are to continually keep and delight in that word even to the very end of our lives. Now, I don't read anywhere that that's easy. Certainly doesn't say that it is, but neither is it impossible. And the rewards, brothers and sisters, are great. Consider Lieutenant General William K. Harrison. Uh, he was the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division uh, of, of the Army, rated by Dwight Eisenhower as the number one infantry division in all of World War II. Uh, General Harrison rode in at the head of the Allied forces as they rolled into uh, Belgium. He received every medal for valor short of the Medal of Honor. He was one of the few generals who was wounded in action. He was chosen to be the, the, the chief of staff in the UN command at the outset of the Korean War, and he was later chosen to lead the negotiations that ended it. Now, long before General Harrison was a general, he was a cadet at West Point. And when he was a 20-year-old cadet, he made a commitment to do two things. One was to read the Old Testament once a year, and the second was to read the New Testament four times a year. And he held to that commitment throughout the years, even in the midst of battle. Uh, sure, he might get behind in his schedule, but in between battles, when his division would go in for <clears throat> resupply and refitting, he would catch up. So that at the end of the war, he was right on <laughs> schedule. Just amazing. Uh, by the time General Harrison lost his eyesight, so that he couldn't read anymore at the age of 90, and you can do the math here, he made the commitment at 20, so this is 70, 70 years later. He had read the Old Testament 70 times, and he had read the New Testament 280 times. Now, if his example teaches us nothing else, it teaches us at least these two things. Number one, no matter how busy one is, no one, even a decorated general at war, is too busy to read God's word. And the second thing we learn is that a life steeped in God's word is a life shaped by God's word, a life handled by God's word. Um, it's, it's written that his closest associates say that every area of General Harrison's life, domestic, spiritual, and professional, and each of the great problems he fa uh, faced were informed by the scriptures. So one who approaches the scriptures has got to do it willfully. The, the Bible is not a magic carpet that comes in and under you, lifts you up, and carries you to where you want to be. No, it's something that you have to take and read by an act of the will. 
and also as an act of courage. You've got to do it courageously. And I'll tell you why. Because if you willfully approach God's word, then you will surely be opposed by those who don't. And especially in our current cultural climate. Uh, there was a piece that was posted about eight months ago in an online magazine that's been around for a couple of decades now. It's entitled, this piece is entitled, The Ten Most Shameful Things to Admit in Los Angeles. And you can hear it coming. Number six is to admit that you are a Christian. And here's what the author says. Uh, he claims that, and I quote, it's weird because L.A. is like the world capital of kooky spiritual beliefs, and Christianity is perhaps the kookiest spiritual belief of all. But unlike 12-step groups, Kabbalah, or the Marianne Williamson lecture circuit, she's a self-help speaker, writer, Christianity is deeply uncool. Maybe it's too mainstream or too working class or just has too much historical baggage. The only thing more embarrassing to believe in is Scientology. <laughs> now, some of you may think, a sad statement, but nothing to pine over. Well, consider this uh, email that my wife and I got from our youngest daughter who was doing a, a gap term uh, during the first half of the year over at a Christian conference center in the UK. And she contacted us and asked us to pray because there was a piece of legislation that was before Parliament asking that uh, the government give this particular agency the power to exercise among churches and camps uh, the power it currently holds over schools. And that is the right to anonymously infiltrate a group, school, camp, church, to determine that the participants are being radicalized and thereby posing a danger to society. Now, gratefully, the legislation didn't pass, but to think that Christians are even viewed in that way is rather disquieting. Now, again, you may say, well, that, that's the UK. They're all the way across the ocean. We're here in the US. We're, we're good, but consider a piece posted 11 days ago in a well-established periodical identifying a, a growing meta-narrative among the media blaming Christians for the recent carnage in Orlando. And if you don't want to go there, just consider what's going on in our own state, the legislation that's up uh, in Sacramento that could change Christian education uh, in this state as we've known it. So I, I was reflecting on all these things and thinking to myself, it's, it's not so hard to imagine how Nero could blame the Christians for the burning of Rome and get away with it, right? And statements like this, legislation, this kind of logic is only going to be on the increase. That's why a person who approaches God's word needs to do so courageously. The insolent smear me with lies, but my whole heart, with my whole heart, I keep your precepts. Verse 69. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. Verse 87. The wicked lie in wait to destroy me, but I consider your testimonies. Verse 95. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray 
from your precepts. Verse 110. Trouble and anguish have found me out, but your commandments are my delight. Verse 143. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, but I do not swerve from your testimonies. Verse 157. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Verse 161. So men and women who willfully and courageously embrace God's word are going to be men and women who are handled by God's word as well. But I have to say that if growing in these habits required only determination, bravery, grit, then why don't we all just choose to be Bible readers and, and be done with it? You know, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. If it was that easy, life would be different. And that's where we begin to recognize, as Thomas pointed out last week, the interconnected nature of these habits. So one who is willfully and courageously embracing God's word is going to find that he or she can only and inextricably do that by way of prayer. Prayer is an indispensable element for approaching God's word. Willfully, yes. Courageously, yes. Prayerfully, absolutely. Um, you really cannot grow to maturity in the word apart from prayer. Uh, Eugene Peterson makes this very uh, incisive example, or uh, statement rather, when he says, the scriptures read and prayed are our primary and normative access to God as he reveals himself to us. The scriptures are our listening post for learning the language of the soul, the way God speaks to us. They also provide the vocabulary and grammar that are appropriate for us as we in turn speak to him. Prayer detached from scripture, from listening to God, disconnected from God's words to us, short circuits the relational language that is prayer. Christians acquire this personal and relational practice of prayer primarily, although not exclusively, writes uh, Peterson, under the shaping influence of the Psalms. So when we look at Psalm 119, how does God instruct his people to pray? And, and specifically, what kind of prayers does God think are most important as we approach the scriptures? That's very interesting. I'll mention three. First of all, when you approach the scripture, open the Bible and ask God that he would teach it to you. Twelve times in those 176 verses, the psalmist asks God to teach him his word. Three of those times he asks that he would add understanding to what he has taught. And one time he specifically prays that the Lord would help him to behold wondrous things. I like that. Behold wondrous things. How many of us fail to behold God's wondrous law? How many of us fail, fail to understand the beauty of his ways? How many of us fail to gain the plain teaching of Scripture because we don't ask for it? We don't ask for it. It's a unique privilege. 
It's a unique privilege of God's people in relationship to this book that's unlike any other book that's been written, is currently extant, or ever will be. Uh, years ago, some buddies and I got together, and we chipped in and bought a ticket for a friend who was a published author. He'd written three Western novels. And we bought him a ticket to go to a workshop out in Riverside where the instructor for the whole day was a fellow named Louis L'Amour. Now, some of you know who L'Amour is. Uh, for those of you that don't, he was a great uh, novelist. He, he was especially a Western writer. And he, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times, was one of the world's most popular writers. So it's a big, big deal. So this, this friend of ours, he heads out to Riverside, which is where the uh, event was taking place, and he gets there early. And because he's there early, he goes to the uh, restaurant at the hotel, and there's L'Amour having breakfast by himself in a booth. So not being a shrinking violet, uh, this friend uh, walks up to L'Amour and greets him and introduces himself. And Louis L'Amour asks our friend to sit down. And for the next 45 minutes, they talked about writing. And it was, it was a, like a surreal thing. And I remember this friend coming back and reporting everything that L'Amour had said, <clears throat> all of which I've forgotten, <laughs> except one thing in particular. I do remember him saying that, that L'Amour told him to, to never write a bare sentence or, or never leave a sentence unador unadorned. So, so you, would, you wouldn't write, the sun went down over the horizon. You would, you would write, the, the blazing orange sun set behind the long and lonely horizon. You know, something like that. So anyway, he, he soaks in all of his stuff, and uh, he comes back and he tells us, and it, it was great fun, it was good for him. And then a few years later, uh, we got the word that Louis L'Amour died. And it was thereby impossible, absolutely, entirely impossible to ever have that kind of a conversation with him again. Writer and reader. But brothers and sisters, <laughs> the spirit who breathed the word of God all those years ago, from pen to paper, is the same spirit that creates that dynamism between the Bible and our hearts. He, he's the one who brings it to life. Uh, the moderator of the Church of Scotland, uh, some years from now, when there's a new monarch crowned uh, over the British, well, over Britain, I don't know how much of an empire they have, if any, anymore, but... The moderator will take a Bible and hand it to the new monarch. And in doing so, refer to the Bible as the lively words of God. Because that's what they are. They are living. They are active. Aren't they? This is why John refers to God's Spirit as our teacher. And why we can prayerfully ask him to instruct us and to give us understanding and to show us wondrous things in God's law. Next thing. Also notice that when we open the Bible, we should pray that God would use it to give us life. 
life. Give me life according to your promise, verse 154. Give me life according to your rules. We don't think about rules as life-giving. God thinks of his rules as life-giving, verse 156. Give me life according to your steadfast love because I love your precepts, verse 159. Could it be, even among the Bible readers here in this room this morning, that our failure to pray for life according to God's word is the reason that we are weak and wavering and merciless and loveless and thoughtless and lifeless and tired? All of which could be remedied. By asking. Prayer breathes life into us by way of God's word. And finally, along with asking God to teach us his word and give us life by way of it, he instructs us to prayerfully ask him that we would be kept from wandering away from the word. Seven times over, the psalmist tells us, Do not wander away from God's word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Verse 10. Incline my heart to your testimonies, not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Verses 36 and 37. Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Verse 133. Uh, the late Bob Sosi, whom some of you knew, uh, said to me once, and as I think of him saying this, I, I can imagine him with all of his customary facial tics and twitches. Uh, he said to me one time, I, I, I've heard people say, well, I've tried that. I've tried asking God to keep me from wandering, from looking at worthless things, from succumbing to iniquity. But it just doesn't work. And then Bob said, uh, with that customary twinkle in his eye, he said, uh, and when I hear that, I think to myself, somebody's not being entirely honest right now, and I don't think it's God. (laughs) God will hold us to his word, especially if we ask him to. Prayerfully responding to scripture transformed the life of the great 19th century gospel worker, George Mueller, who, um, whose custom it was to uh, get up, dress, pray, and that according to his agenda for the day. But in the spring of 1841, he discovered that, and I quote, the most important thing I had to do was first to give myself to the reading of God's word, and then to prayerful meditation upon it. So instead of letting his agenda for the day drive uh, his life, it was the prayerful reading of God's word and then living in response to that. Well, what are some uh, practical ways that we can uh, willfully and courageously and prayerfully uh, live this out? Well, let me just begin by saying, remember Jesus. Remember his example. He was the word made flesh. He shows us how to do the word. He is the fulfillment of all the word as we see it in the Old Testament. 
So when Jesus is answering the temptations of the adversary in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, how does he do it? According to the word. Uh, when Jesus thinks of his own work in this world, his, his identity, if you will, how does he do it? In Matthew chapter 20, by way of the word. When Jesus teaches his followers how to pray in Matthew chapter 6, how does he do it? By way of the word. When you look at what Jesus has to say in any of those three passages, and, and you see what it is on which he's basing his comments there in the, the center margin, what are the other passages where we can find what Jesus is saying? It's all coming out of the Old Testament. So if, if Jesus' life was forged on the anvil of the Word, so should ours be. And so I, I would say on the tail of that, be a Nike Christian and just do it. Just pick it up and read it. That, that was certainly my experience. One morning, I was in my early 30s. I realized that other than reading the Bible from cover to cover when I was a teenager to answer a challenge, respond to a challenge of my youth pastor, I had never really read the Word. So I, I picked up a Bible. It was a paraphrase. It was cast in the old one-year Bible format. I just began reading it every day. And where I had a question... I'd write down the question in the back cover, and then where, where I'd come across an answer, I'd write that down too. And I just kept reading. Now, you don't have to read the Bible like that. That's a totally 20th century way to do it. Uh, in the 21st century, we have BibleGateway.com. And Bible Gateway will give you almost 20 different ways that you can approach reading the Scriptures in a regular and systematic fashion. And not only that, Bible Gateway will deliver your daily portion of scripture, scripture to you by way of email. And of course, there are apps galore uh, toward this end that you can take along in your handheld. Now, what, what have I found to be the value of reading the Bible? Well, for one thing, it just helped me to know what's in it. Who are the people? How do they act? How do they react? What are the themes throughout the scripture uh, by, by which it's, it's, it's driven? Um, Reading the Bible debunked some popular myths. So, like, sometimes you're talking to somebody about reading the Bible and maybe reading it all the way through, and they say, yeah, and then I got to the book of Numbers, and it was very heavy sledding. And I thought to myself, well, I've read the book of Numbers, and that's actually pretty good. <laughs> so maybe they haven't really worked that hard at it. Prophecies are inscrutable. That's another one you hear. Well, not as many as you may think. Uh, here's another one. You can make the Bible say whatever you want. And I found that to be true. Unless you've read it and you know what it says. <laughs> I think the thing I, I, I've, I don't think I know the thing I've most uh, benefited from the Bible is that Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of Christ. If you are weak in faith, if you have faith trouble, the word will answer that, because that's the way by which faith comes. Well, maybe reading's not your thing. Then I encourage you to listen to the Bible. I have it on my Kindle. I listen to it sometimes at night. I listen to it on a plane. You can get your daily scripture portions from BibleGateway.com. Audio portions uh, 
uh, in that way. You can hear the Bible read dramatically on YouTube from Genesis all the way to Revelation. That's how the original audience heard it. That's how uh, all the original recipients of the scripture received it, was by way of hearing. And that's why at the beginning of every uh, book series here at Grace, we have a, have a reading service so we can sit under the hearing of God's word. Another way to approach the scripture is by writing it down. Deuteronomy 17, 18 informed God's people that when a king of Israel sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. So every king of Israel was not only required to hear God's law, to, to read God's law, but they were also required to write God's law as well, copy it. Now I'm going to say a word. It's, it's embarrassing to speak. Um, and, and, and you're welcome to Google it. Don't, in first service, I, saw, I, I said this, you Google this word, and then I saw people going, <laughs> don't Google it right now. It's the word journable. Journable. Sounds like a pet that a six-year-old would have. J-O-U-R-N-I-B-L-E. And a journable is a hardbound book with blank ruled pages on the right side of which you copy down uh, the scriptures, whatever book you happen to be working on. And then on the left uh, page, you can write observations and notes. And, and the books, these journals that, that you purchase are commensurate in size to the book of the Bible that you happen to be copying. And my wife and my daughters have done these for years now. Their level of engagement with the scripture has been great. Uh, their attention to the scripture uh, certainly is great, and they keep coming back for more. So I heartily endorse journals. It's, it's neat to see on the table the book of Philippians, as Philippians on the side, and to pick it up and open it, see it all written in my wife's hand. I love that. Another way to connect with God's word is to read the Bible in community. And this is what I mean. Uh, sometimes when uh, our family's home for an extended break, like Christmas or uh, the summer, I'll choose a, a passage of scripture or a book and I'll copy it, and I'll paste it in a Word document, and I'll leave big margins around each page, and I'll put it together, I'll create a little cover, I'll, I'll take it to Staples, have it printed off and bound, I'll distribute it. In fact, here's the one that we did last summer. It happens to be on Psalm 119. And uh, just put it together, each little section of the Psalms, you can see is printed there, and got nice wide margins and a blank page. And people use it just to read and, and to write. And then we come together and talk about it. And I would have to say some of our best memories at Laguna Beach in the summertime or around the fireplace at Christmas time has been with everybody holding this book and talking about uh, what they've read and uh, the observations they've made, uh, mutually encouraging one another in the scriptures. It's been great. The last thing uh, I want to mention to you is not, uh, well, it's, it's an extra biblical resource, but I mention it because it's saturated in the scripture, and it's called A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. 
It's uh, done by Focus Publishing, but it's a great way of preaching the gospel to yourself every day in either prose or in poetry. And everywhere that Vincent refers to the scripture, and it, this thing is replete with scripture, he uh, quotes it in full at the bottom of the page. So a, uh, a uh, what is it called? A gospel primer. I was reading it even this morning. A gospel primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. All right, let me finish. I, I just want to share with you two impressions that I had while I was writing this sermon. They, they sound like apocryphal impressions, you know, the kind of thing that a pastor would say in order to make a point. Uh, no, they're not. I was actually thinking these things as I was writing this sermon. I, I was thinking about a hydroelectric plant, and I was thinking about an ethanol plant. What's a, what's a hydroelectric plant? Well, it's, it uses water to run turbines that create power that light up a, a power grid, right? And an ethanol plant uses corn to make fuel that uh, operates an automobile, right? And people make a living damming and channeling water to make electricity. And people grow and harvest corn to make gallons and gallons of ethanol. But you know what? This is really this is interesting to me. It's fascinating. Water and corn aren't just means of making a living. You can eat corn. You can even drink water. That's, that's fascinating. And in the same way, the Bible isn't just that thing for which this church stands. It's, it's not that book, just that book on which a Biola student is tested or about which or from which a professor lectures. Brothers and sisters, you can eat this book. You can eat it. The prophet Jeremiah said, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. And not only that, you can drink this book. Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him, that comes by way of his word, will never be thirsty again. If there was one verse that 18th, 19th century divine Charles Simeon quoted more than any others in all of his sermons, all of his uh, over 1,500 sermons, <clears throat> it was Psalm 81.10. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Please bow your heads. Brothers and sisters, it is time to begin reading the word with our mouths wide open so that the Lord can fill it. 
And that's, neat. that's going to have to happen willfully, courageously, and prayerfully. And in doing so, you will grow in that habit of grace that leads to an intimacy with and enjoyment of God as well as a fruitful life for Him, a life that you could not have otherwise imagined. So you, you know what the barriers are right now that stand between you and that kind of a life. Would you just take a moment to ask the Lord to kick those down so that you can become more and more a man or woman of the Word? Lord, for me, it is fatigue. It's a crowded schedule. It's thinking that other things are more important than your book that uh, causes me to push it aside and pursue those other things. But if it's really the most important thing, I pray that you would help me and help us to realign our priorities for this new week in accordance with this great habit, this discipline of eating and drinking and being nourished by your word. Toward the end, as we saw earlier on the screen, that we are in deeper relationship with you. Not that we're more like you, though that's, that, that's, a, that's a, a benefit of it, but, but that we know you that we can enjoy our relationship with you, our Redeemer God. It's toward this end we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.